Hello and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This is episode number 722 and we're talking, or I'm talking, fasting with Dr. Alan Goldhamer. Dr. Alan is the founder of the True North Health Center where he has taken thousands and thousands of people through water fasts people with chronic conditions, and as he says, he has been the last stop for a number of people. Over the years, he's amassed an incredible amount of evidence. He has a number of papers, which I have linked to in the show notes, to back up what he's saying. He doesn't mess around with words. He's pretty straight to the point and very honest about the situation of the world. He was great to talk to, and I'm sure you'll enjoy listening. Thanks a lot for tuning in. This is Fasting with Dr. Allen, episode number 722. Dr. Allen Goldhammer, welcome to the Inner Fight Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Dr. Allen, you have, I guess, for want of a better term, dedicated pretty much your whole life or been into fasting for your whole life and researching fasting, the benefits of the body. How did this all start? Uh, for me, I got interested in fasting at a really young age. I was a teenager, and I was uh, attempting to become a more effective basketball player, actually. I had a friend named Doug Lyle, who is today the clinical psychologist at the True North Health Center, and he used to beat me mercilessly. And so I thought in order to get an edge, I would learn you know, what I could do. And so I read some books, and one of them was by a guy named Herbert Shelton. And he said something I found really interesting. He said that health was the result of healthful living. Right. And that healthful living involved diet, sleep, and exercise. And he also talked about the use of fasting as a way of undoing the consequences of dietary excess. And I thought, well, you know, that makes sense. And I adopted those principles, hoping that I would allow me to, you know, beat Doug Lyle in basketball. Of course, you know, it failed because it turned out that he adopted the same diet and lifestyle approach. And to this day, I'm 62 now. He still beats me mercilessly every time we play basketball. So it was a failure in terms of my basketball efficiency. But what it did do was introduce me to this concept of health and healthful living. And I decided early on that that was uh, something I wanted to pursue. I was also encouraged by my uncle, who was a physician, who said that uh, nobody in our family would go to an alternative type doctor, let alone become an alternative doctor. He said, better I should be a communist spy. And he was absolutely vehemently opposed to it. I remember my, my father took me aside and he was a serious guy, my dad. And he said, you know, son, I don't know about this alternative yeah. medicine. And he said, but anything that makes him that angry and mad, well, it can't be bad. So <laughs> stick to your guns. I love it. Here so I am some years later. Doing, <laughs> still working with this stuff so. it's amazing two two of your sort of turning points or, or main main motivators are, are, are simply born out of the great male ego <laughs> absolutely okay. and, well, my, my wife says the entire operation is to try to prove that i'm right and everybody else is wrong so you know <laughs> what can i say i mean she also says that we have a facility designed so that i'd make sure i have a place to eat lunch so i don't know what <laughs> It's quite interesting. A lot of people said I opened a gym, so I had a place to work out. So yeah, I know exactly where you're at. If we, if we sort of turn the dial back a little bit, fasting actually started a long time ago. And it's, it, it's quite interesting what you said there, because 
it was started for people to undo the effects of poor health. Talk to us about what you found when you first looked into it and what you thought at that young age. Well, you know, there's a lot of references to fasting. In fact, if you go to the Bible, Moses, yeah. David, Elijah, Jesus fasted as long as 40 days. Despite the fact that many of the world's major religions will kill each other in the street over their disagreements, they all have one thing in common. They all have a tradition of fasting, yeah. uh, both for physical as well as mental and spiritual uh, development. You know, and fasting changes how you feel about yourself and the world around you. It can't help it. Yeah. And as a consequence, uh, you know, there's a long tradition about fasting. Fasting itself is a biological adaptation. That means humans had to have the ability to fast in order for our species to survive. And part of that's because we have such a disproportionately large bulbous neuronal net at the end of our spinal column called the brain. The brain is our biggest burner of glucose. And as a consequence, were it not for humans' abilities to change brain fuels, that large glucose-burning brain would have meant that we couldn't go more than a week or so without eating uh, before we'd enter starvation and then die. And as a consequence of our brain's ability to change fuels, we were able to go instead of a week, like our chimpanzee cousins, uh, without food, we can go, you know, a 70 kilogram male can go 70 days or more. Mm. And in large part, because our main glucose burning machinery can convert to burning fat. And that's essentially what fasting is, is changing over our internal physiology. What we've discovered is that by using this very ancient practice of fasting, we can apply it in a very unnatural setting. That is where people have dietary excess exposure. Mm -hmm. And as a consequence, the body, it turns out, is able to undo these consequences of dietary excess and the diseases associated with them. So the cardiovascular disease, including high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, autoimmune disorders, and even some forms of cancer like lymphoma respond very well to this process of fasting. It's, to some people, it's quite alien though even though it's back dates to, as you said, biblical times, it's in everyone's religion. If you said to people now, and, and okay, we've, people have heard about intermittent fasting, we'll talk, talk more about it maybe later, but if you said to people, abstain from food for 16 hours, people start to say, but I'll get hungry. And I'll well, actually, you know, people think if they get on a plane in Australia and they were to fly all the way to California, uh, they would die about two thirds away from the trip through start. They think those peanuts save their life. You know, <laughs> so people, yeah, they're, they're terrified of any discomfort, including hunger. And they are quite confident that they would deplete all their labor reserves and, and perish. Uh, we know now, of course, that's not true. We routinely fast patients at the True North Health Center on water only for periods up to 40 days. Yeah. And we've done this for um, <clears throat> 39 years. And we've had over 21,000 uh, people go through this fasting process. And so far, everybody that's walked in has walked out. And we're trying real hard to keep it that way. <laughs> Talk to us about, you, you mentioned the True North Health Center. It, you, you're the founder of it. Talk to us about that. And then we'll go back into more the technical side of fasting. Well, you know, True North Health Center is a, has grown over the years. And now we have about 15 clinicians, so doctors of medicine and osteopathy, chiropractic, psychology, et cetera, working together in an integrative clinic where we can provide history exam lab and proper monitoring for patients undergoing 
medically supervised water-only fasting. Uh, we also have patients that maybe aren't candidates for water fasting, but might use juice fasting or a healthy eating program, a whole plant food, SOS-free diet. SOS, of course, is the international symbol of danger, but it also stands for the chemicals added to food, salt, oil, and sugar that make people fat, sick, and miserable, that lead to metabolic syndrome, that contribute to the cardiovascular disease, the cancer, the diabetes, the autoimmune diseases. And of course, that's why fasting seems to be so uh, beneficial because it helps undo the consequences of those diseases. So we see those conditions reverse. And the True North Health Center is also essentially, uh, True North is a uh, research laboratory disguised as a clinic for a 501c3 <laughs> nonprofit organization that conducts primary research into fasting. And we've published a number of papers in peer-reviewed journals, all of which is located on our website at fasting.org. Fasting.org is a, is a compendium website of the world's literature on fasting, uh, including the work that we've done, uh, looking at various conditions, and uh, including, for example, a fasting safety study, uh, as well as uh, clinical trials uh, in using fasting for high blood pressure, for diabetes, for autoimmune diseases, and also for lymphoma. But it's not, for a lot of people, the first port of call. First of- <laughs> that's true <laughs> is it like you know I'm, I'm i'm feeling something in my chest or i'm starting to put weight on i get out of breath walking up the stairs i don't rock up at true north health center and say dr allen starve me for 40 days what? yeah we say uh <laughs> that the, the name for the true north health center the nickname is uh the true north health center the last resort yeah basically <laughs> So I, I'm interested to get your take on the on the psychology behind that, because you you don't have to be a genius to look at human nature, how we've evolved in the last 20 to 30 years. You don't have to be a genius to think back 15 years ago, what was on the supermarket shelf, hear about processed food and all this, that and the other. However, we still see a the majority of the population going to what? we'd call or what is modern medicine or traditional medicine, a doctor's surgery to get fixed with a tablet. What's your take on the psychology behind that? Well, the best motivating factor in my experience uh, for fasting is pain, debility, and fear of death. Those seem to be the patients that are most motivated to do anything, even dangerous and radical things like eat well or exercise or go to bed (laughs) on time, or in our case, undergo fasting. You know, fasting, as I said, is a biological adaptation. We're designed to be able to fast. All human beings uh, go through this process of adaptation. When it's done properly in a controlled setting, it can be done safely and effectively. And we've proven that with the fasting safety study, where we took all of the patients that underwent fasting at the True North Health Center for a period of five years and looked at all of their adverse events and all the issues relevant to that and published that in a paper people can review for themselves. And what you find is that fasting is, in fact, a safe and can be an effective tool when it's done properly. That means where there's been an appropriate medical history, a proper physical exam, appropriate laboratory monitoring in a controlled setting. In those circumstances, long-term fasting, including fasting up to 40 days, uh, can be done safely and it can be extremely effective at helping people overcome these diseases of chronic excess, which by the way, conventionally treated are conventional physician. They will tell you that you'll be on one, two, three, four, maybe five medications, and Mm. that you'll be on those medications forever. Mm. They will guarantee you, if you do what you're told, 
you'll never get well. You'll be sick for the rest of your life. And that the medications may have serious side effects, including chronic cough, fatigue, impotence, and even death. And, and so as a consequence, they'll tell you that high blood pressure, for example, can't be treated because they don't know what causes high blood pressure and therefore there's nothing that's uh, available to cure it. But you just take these pills, uh, hope for the best, and, and don't ask too many questions. I love the way that you're very, and, and you've created quite a reputation for yourself, I think, Alan, for being quite honest, call it outspoken. Some people might call it controversial. How does that I've also heard you? rude. I don't know. That <laughs> comes up. I don't think you're rude at all. Well, you haven't been rude yet. Hopefully, we'll, we'll, we'll get you to be a bit rude in a bit. But you, you, you're obviously, you have the research and you, you obviously have a lot of passion about it. As you said there, you've, you've done a lot of studies. You've written a lot of papers, which are peer-reviewed. I'll link to all of those in the show notes. What, why do you think you're met with sort of people calling you controversial and, and outspoken when actually so far you've just made things very simple for the listeners and very believable? Well, we believe that there's a hidden force that undermines health and happiness. And we call that force the pleasure trap. And just coincidentally, that's the title of our book, The Pleasure Trap, Mastering the Hidden Force that Undermines Health and Happiness. And we believe that people are fat, sick, and miserable because they're fooled into overeating by chemicals that are added to their feed. And those chemicals are salt, oil, and sugar. And so if you take animals, for example, rats or mice, and give them access to these chemicals, they'll gain 49% of their body weight in 60 days. And it's not wow. for psychological reasons. The rats don't get fat because they're under stress or mommy didn't love them enough, or daddy rat loved them too much, they get overweight because their brains are fooled into overeating. And that's exactly yeah. what happens in humans. Humans that are fed highly fractionated processed foods gain weight. And it's proportional to how much of those foods they eat and their own individual characteristics. And as a consequence, we now have a society, at least in the United States, where two-thirds of people are overweight or obese. So if you're not overweight, you're actually abnormal. You don't want to be normal anymore. You want to be healthy and healthy people are not overweight and don't have high blood pressure, diabetes, autoimmune disease, or cancer. Uh, but people in our society do. The majority of people are sick and suffering and unnecessarily as a consequence of this pleasure trap. And so it turns out that fasting is one way of helping escape the pleasure trap. Uh, whether you're addicted to drugs like nicotine or alcohol and you fast, those withdrawals are uh, greatly facilitated. Uh, most smokers by two or three days of fasting have no withdrawal uh, cravings. Wow. Now, some people say, yeah, because they're so miserable fasting, they don't even think about the cigarettes. So that's <laughs> not actually true. It's because all these metabolic processes are sped up during fasting. And so it makes it easier to break a bad habit, whether it's smoking or drinking or a uh, dietary pleasure trap. People are eating refined carbohydrates and fats, animal foods. These uh, addictions can be broken more quickly with fasting. For example, with salt, um, people add a lot of salt to their food and as a consequence, they hold fluids, get high blood pressure and, and they get fat. And people say, well, how can you get fat eating salt? Salt has no calories. It's just sodium chloride. But what it does is it stimulates what's called passive overeating. And so if you just eat to your full, to your natural satiety mechanisms kick in, you'll eat a certain amount, whatever it is, say brown mm -hmm. rice. Mm -hmm. But if you salt that up, you'll eat more before you feel satisfied and you will systematically overeat, and you'll gain weight. So it stimulates passive overeating. Now, some people say, yeah, because the food tastes better. And that's true, but what tasting better means is the food results in more dopamine stimulation in the brain. 
yeah. for people that really want to understand this, they should read our book, The Pleasure Trap. It's a very disturbing book because it does not tell them what they want to hear. <laughs> it tells them what they need to know to get and stay healthy. Yeah. And if they don't like to read, they can listen to it because that's available on audio. And, you know, so definitely worth, uh, I think, people's time if they really want to understand why it is that it's so difficult adopting a health promoting diet and lifestyle habits in a world designed to make you fat sick and miserable i shall link to the book also in the show notes and i suggest people read it because it is exactly what you said dr allen can you take us through your first fasting experience um yeah interestingly enough one of the per first uh, uh, patients that I fasted was actually Doug Lyle. And uh, <laughs> that may have been a mistake because it really improved his health even more. And then he <laughs> beat me even more badly. Uh, you know, the fact is everybody fasts every day. You go to bed and you don't eat and you yeah. go for a period of time and you wake your, up and, and, you, and then you break your fast with breakfast. Yep. Now, one of the things we recommend people do is they consciously and purposely extend that fasting period every day. We believe wow. people should fast every single day for a period of 12 to 16 hours. And so that they limit their feeding window to eight to 12 hours, depending on if they're trying to gain weight or lose weight, what their, their circumstances are. And just by not eating for a, that period of time, that 12 to 16 hours, that induces changes that cumulatively are thought to be of some benefit. And there yeah. are people like Walter Longo and others that have pioneered research with this intermittent fasting concept. And, you know, I would defer, defer uh, people to his work. You know, our work is really more involved with long-term water-only fasting, which is really more medically supervised. The nice thing about the intermittent fasting is that can be done safely by most people without direct medical supervision, just by narrowing their feeding window by not eating three or four hours before you go to sleep you'll find you sleep better you get better digestion it also may help uh, with weight control by not eating before you go to bed so food isn't stored uh, as efficiently at night and that you know delaying your breakfast in the morning to do some exercise may increase the percentage of calories burned from fat so you know intermittent fasting has all kinds of potential applications that may be useful for all people and we do act uh, we do practice uh, this type of a narrowed feeding window with all of our patients. And I certainly do that myself. Do you believe that when people wake up in the morning and they say, I'm super hungry, do you believe that that's a pre-programmed message from their brain because they've woken up? Do you believe that they haven't eaten enough the day before? Or do you believe they're just being soft and they need to continue their fast and like you say, break it? Between 12 no, I think what's going on is they've eaten a bunch of refined carbohydrates that stimulates uh, sugar to go up and insulin to go up, which drives sugar down. So in the morning, their brain thinks they're starving to death right? because they're, they have a drug-like effect from poor dietary choices. What you find when people go on a whole plant food, SOS-free diet, that is a salt, oil, sugar-free diet, their insulin levels don't bounce around as much. So they don't, their brain doesn't fool them into thinking they're starving even when they have plenty of caloric intake. As a consequence, blood sugar levels are more stable. They can uh, extend their natural daily fasting period without being ravenous, hungry, or dysfunctional. Uh, most people are addicts, essentially, whether it's addicted to drugs or it's addicted to the chemicals added to their food. Yeah. And so they can't really go, sometimes they can't go more than a few hours without eating before they think they're dying. Um, you know, these kinds of cravings, the binging, the, the ravenous hungers, the uh, a lot of times are just a sign of imbalance in the body's blood sugar and insulin uh, regulating mechanisms. Interestingly enough, um, you know, type two diabetics, which are 
uh, ubiquitous now in our societies um, are increasing dramatically, including amongst children. Mm. And so these, uh, the, this type of type 2 diabetes um, is not associated with insulin deficiency. Type 2 diabetics actually make more insulin, not less. It just yeah. doesn't work because of insulin resistance. And there are two things that work to reverse insulin resistance. One is exercise and the other is fasting. And you're going to hear this theme over and over again. The, the biochemical changes that occur with exercise often also occur with fasting, mm -hmm. even though they're very uh, um, different behaviors. You know, fasting, you're resting, exercise, you're vigorous. But both of them are induced biochemical changes associated with the reversal of the aging process. And that may be because both exercise and fasting have one thing in common. They both undo the consequences of dietary excess. And so dietary excess, I'm telling you, is the leading contributing cause of death and disability. That's what's made people fat, sick, and miserable. That's where metabolic syndrome comes from. That's where the increased risk of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cancer come from. And so exercise, not surprisingly, helps reverse those processes, and so does fasting. Mm. And the combination of intermittent fasting, healthy eating, and regular vigorous exercise actually results in dramatically enhanced life expectancy, certainly in rats, but also in humans. So if you want to live longer and better, yeah. what you want to do is eat a whole plant food SOS free diet, exercise appropriately, get enough sleep, and then intermittent fast every day for 12 to 16 hours, and perhaps occasionally a longer period of fasting in a controlled setting. You've spoken a few times about that window of 12 to 16 hours. For some people, that 12 to 16 is a, is a four-hour period. It's like 30% of 12 hours. What's the... In, in your experience and in your studies, what's the difference of breaking a fast at 12 hours versus hanging on till 16 hours? Well, probably most of the world's literature on this topic talk about 12 hours of fasting. Right. What we found is that um, extending that period to 16 hours actually may be helpful, particularly when people are struggling with weight control right. and uh, trying to maximize fat burning. When people are trying to gain weight or maintain weight because of high athletic performance, it may not be practical because there may not be enough hours in the day to consume enough low-density, high-nutrition calories. Yeah. So we would extend that feeding window uh, to accommodate them. Right now, two-thirds of people are overweight. So for the overweight folks, extending that fasting period may have some beneficial consequences. And a lot of people... In my experience, anyway, I, I come into contact with a lot of people who like to exercise first thing in the morning. Yeah. So if they are within, and, and generally people feel, and, and you might confirm this either way, people feel a lot more hungry after exercise, and they might also feel like they can perform the exercise at a higher intensity should they eat something before. So how would you mix or, or, or what have you found is the best recipe for mixing exercise with fasting? Should people be fasting at the end of their window of their fa uh, exercising at the end of their fasting window? Or how would you prescribe that? Well, I've, I've seen some data that suggests if you want to maximize the percentage of calories that are burned from fat, you would exercise uh, prior to terminating your daily fast. Yeah. Um, um, honestly, if people are eating a whole plant food, SOS free diet, getting enough sleep and exercise, I'm not sure it's going to matter a whole lot one way or the other in the long run, because people are going to be so healthy and fit that, you know, they're not really going to have to worry too much. But if your goal is, for example, active weight loss, some suggest that a 16-hour fast with exercise at the end of that fasting cycle might maximize the percentage of calories born from fat. You also want to be careful because what's good for maximum athletic performance isn't always necessarily good for health. Yeah. So, you know, 
uh, NFL um, uh, linemen that take anabolic steroids may get bigger and faster quick, more quickly, but then they get testicular atrophy and die from cancer or, or cardiovascular disease at 52. So yeah. we want to be careful. What I'm interested in is helping people live as long and healthy life as possible. Not necessarily what's the fastest, quickest way to bulk up or yeah. how to perform, you know, uh, or what you would do as, as, as carb loading leading into a marathon race or something. So, you know, in terms of what my patients are mostly interested in is not just living as long as possible, but more importantly, not becoming debilitated for the average 9.6 years before mm-hmm. they pass away. They don't want to find themselves unable to talk or move lying in some nursing home bed, waiting for people to come and change their diaper. They want to live a fully functional, independent life uh, and not have to have their kids change their diapers when they get older. Now, I did have one patient that said, you know, when he was, his kids were young, he had to change their diaper. So why shouldn't they have to change his? <laughs> but I don't agree with that. I think that we all, most of us want to live a fully functional and independent life. And that means not having a stroke, not having a heart attack. And the way you do that is adopt a whole plant food, SOS-free diet, exercise, and sleep appropriately. You said that people, or you advise people to stop eating three to four hours before they go to bed. Now, a lot of listeners, I pre- presuming, are working sort of a nine to five job and are sat there calculating. Okay, if I start, I stop eating at this time. Starting to, how do I actually fit life in? So, how do you, on a practical level, implement these things of fasting twelve hours and stopping eating in that window? So, you know, people are going to bed nine, ten o'clock. They they might not finish work till six. And I I know. Because I listen to yep. a lot of these excuses. I know a lot of them are, are often excuses. And if you want to make it happen, you will make it happen. But on an actual practicality level, what, how should people really, you know, I, I want people to finish listening to this and, and, you know, go and maybe try some fasting. How would they implement that in their life? Well, what, what you would want to do is, first of all, you want to try to get to bed at, an, at, a, at a decent hour. So the answer wouldn't be to stay up till 3 a.m. in order to extend your fasting window. <laughs> so for those of us fortunate to get off work at some reasonable hour and not have to spend two hours a day driving, uh, commuting to some job we hate to work with people <laughs> we despise for a company we detest, make money we don't need because we think we have a short-term pleasure-seeking self-indulgent behavior deficiency and can get home at a decent hour. So if you're, if you're home by six uh, and you have dinner uh, uh, so that by 6.30, you, you know, you're completed, don't eat after dinner. You don't need to eat. You just ate. You don't need to put additional <laughs> calories in because you're bored or tired or angry. Yeah. Instead of eating when you're bored, tired, or angry, go to sleep, get rest, meditate, or exercise. Do other things to actually deal with the issues. And so if you stop eating at, at 6 or 6.30 and you go to bed at 9 or 9.30 and you get your eight hours sleep and you delay your breakfast for a little bit, hopefully you get a little exercise in the morning, it's not uh, very difficult to see that you can get anywhere from 12 to 16 hours a fasting, even in, uh, you know, a more challenging schedule. The other thing you can do is you can load your calories earlier in the day. So perhaps you have a large lunch meal and uh, a smaller evening meal, or, you know, depending on your circumstances, you're going to have to modify your, your situation. Yeah. Um, ideally, what we do at True North Health is we have people eating, you know, between 830 and 930 in the morning, uh, they eat at five o'clock in the evening. Uh, and so, you know, they have 16 hours of, of time in which they can um, uh, digest their foods and, 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 and take advantage of that intermittent fasting period. There's different bits of literature that suggest 
the different macronutrients that people should be aware of when breaking their fast mm. and at different times during the feeding window. What's your what's your take on it? What's your suggestion for people? Is that something that people need to be really strict about or how would it go? Well, in a 12 to 16 hour intermittent fast, I think just eating a whole plant food SOS free diet in whatever proportion and ratio you're interested in is going to be fine. I love it. Um, for longer term fasting, it's exceptionally critical that refeeding be done properly. Yep. On a very long fast, when we do 30 and 40 day fast, inappropriate refeeding can result in extreme distress or even refeeding syndrome, which could right. be serious or even fatal. So it's important that uh, refeeding be done. For example, on a long fast, for every seven to 10 days of fasting that un patient underwent, there'd be one day of fresh fruit or vegetable juices, one day of fresh raw fruits and vegetables, and one day of steamed or starchy vegetables in addition to salad. So it might take half the length of the fast to terminate a fast in a controlled setting. So 30-day yeah. fast, there'd be 15 days of controlled refeeding. Wow. And if you follow our protocol, there is no refeeding syndrome. There is no uh, acute distress. But if you don't, it can be a, a really significant, potentially seriously compromising issue. Probably one of the most tricky parts of fasting is actually proper termination. Because right. when you come off a fast, the tendency is to want to overeat. <laughs> yeah. The more concentrated people are trying to make up for their lost time. It's because you're and freaking so, starving. <laughs> that has to be, uh, well, actually, technically, you're still fasting. Fasting goes until you deplete your labile reserves, and then you enter a process called starvation. Yep. If you enter starvation and stay there, you'll die. Right. So we don't do starvation at True North Health Center because it would be really bad on our outcome data. <laughs> so we're very careful about that. And as I said, we've had 21,000 in a row uh, without entering starvation. Wow. So we're going to try to continue that practice. I'd be interested if you if you wouldn't mind, doctor, to, to talk us through someone. Obviously, if someone is practicing intermittent fasting, great. That's what that's what you suggest. But to come to True North Health for a prolonged fast, talk us through the process. Why would someone do that? If they're intermittent fasting anyway, they're they're eating a, a good diet, like you said, exercising, sleeping well. What why would they come there? And if they did, how would it look? Well, we have some people uh, that come to True North Health because it's a chance for them to get away from the real world, get a break, uh, have healthy foods, be in an educational and supportive environment. Some people are healthy people that come in once a year just to do a longer fast as a preventative measure. I personally believe that we may find that occasionally doing a longer term fast may be preventative uh, in nature and may wow. actually be some of the people that get the most benefit of fasting. But most of the people that come to True North Health become, come because of pain, debility, and fear of death. Right. They have high blood pressure, they have diabetes, they have obesity, they have autoimmune disease. They, they're, they're driven by their pain, their debility, they want to get off meds, they want to resolve their tumor. And as a consequence, they're prepared to come into a medically supervised setting, go through history exam and lab and undergo long-term water-only fasting in a controlled setting. Mm. Long-term fasting is best done in a controlled setting with, with right. physicians that are experienced in monitoring fasting. You do want it to be obviously safe in addition to effective. And that's one thing that facilities like True North Health Center can help ensure uh, happen. Yeah. It's, it's also important that people understand you cannot fast safely on medication. So it's important that medications be appropriately withdrawn. You also don't want to just arbitrarily discontinue medications uh, because the withdrawal of some medications too rapidly can be fatal. So it's important that that be assessed and monitored. And it's important to work with doctors that are familiar with people actually getting well, yeah. because most doctors never see people get well. That if they have type 2 diabetics or they have patients with high blood pressure, they may never, ever, ever have had a patient recover. Most people have never had people lose substantial weight and keep it off. 
Mm. They know recidivism and obesity is so high, they don't even bother to try it in some cases. And so working with doctors that actually do have experience people getting well, oftentimes gets you very different advice than doctors that just believe that everything's caused by pill deficiency. Yeah. Uh, in fact, you know, recently uh, with the advent of the pandemic, we've uh, initiated um, a telemedicine practice where right. our clinicians are available remotely. Right. where people can log in through Zoom. And, and that's been really a fabulous thing. It's been interesting to see how rapidly that's grown uh, because it's so hard for people to get physicians sometimes that can talk to them intelligently and helping them interpret their lab or help them decide what nutritional medicine intervention they could do that might be useful. Or um, in some cases, we've had patients, particularly in foreign countries, that haven't been able to get access to the United States right now. It was before uh, we had problems with, you know, uh, political issues, and now there's pandemic issues. And so we have doctors that have been working with their local doctors so that they can do these processes safely. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's a lot of different reasons why this new technology has been really uh, fabulous uh, for yeah. us and our patients, because it's given people access to physicians they wouldn't normally have access to in the past. That's very cool. Are you seeing an increasing, obviously, as you said, you a lot of people that come to see you, it's almost like, last chance saloon, last stop. Are you seeing an increasing number of people that are just using, in, in my opinion, using a little bit of common sense and going, okay, we've seen fasting in biblical times. If we look to cavemen and how they ate, this kind of makes sense. We've got a little bit lost here in the middle, but before I get completely screwed up and, and full of medication, I might actually go and try a 30 or 40 day water fast. Are you seeing more of those people? Well, I'm seeing a lot of more educated, more sophisticated patients that are really looking about long-term health promotion, nice. a long -term, not just, I got pain, I want my pain to go yeah. away, or I got some weight I want to lose or whatever. Yeah. Um, we're also seeing a lot of very high-end healthy people that are using um, long-term but shorter duration, you know, one week, 10-day fasting to augment athletic performance or to resolve chronic inflammatory issues that are sometimes inevitable when you deal with. Uh, high-end athletes that are pushing their bodies to kind of the limits. Yeah. And so trying to increase those limits, sometimes, you know, fasting may have utility as well. I, I really do believe that we're going to find, we're doing some research on this, that the biomarker changes associated with health may be more beneficially impacted by fasting in healthy people, even than sick people. Yeah. It's more obvious in sick people. You can see, you know, the pain goes away, the swelling goes down, the weight comes off, the blood pressure. But yeah. it, it actually may turn out that it even more impact is happening in the healthy people that are trying to stay that way. You know, with rats, if you do periodic fasting, you can literally double their lifespan. Wow. It's really quite remarkable. Wow. And now we're starting to learn about some of the biochemical changes that are occurring um, in fasting, things that increase, things that decrease. And now they've identified people like Walter Longo and others have published some really fascinating articles. You know, we talked about like glucose and insulin being impacted, but also is IGF-1, insulin growth factor 1. And we know that the lower IGF-1 levels, the longer typically animals uh, survive. We know that things like leptin go down in fasting, and that's associated with reduced inflammation. We know the blood pressure, the heart rate go down in fasting, also associated with improved health. There's something called mTOR, mammalian target of rampamycin. It goes down in fasting, and the lower your mTOR, the higher your uh, uh, autophagy. Wow. Uh, autophagy is you know, how the body eats up cancer cells and debris yeah, and clears yeah. out of this. And, and uh, um, uh, 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 Mr. Uh, Dr. Ashuni uh, uh, 
did got his no, no um the Nobel Prize for Medicine in 2016 for his work on autophagy. It turns out fasting has a profound effect apparently on autophagy, yeah. increasing the body's ability to clear out this debris. Fasting affects the microbial load in the gut. You know, you got a thousand creatures or strains of organisms living in your gut. These are living creatures swimming yeah. around and eating and <laughs> drinking and defecating inside you right now. And yeah. what that five pounds of bacteria poos in your gut could profoundly affect your health. And so if you feed those bacteria, for example, people that eat high meat diets have very different bacteria than people that have plant food diets. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things associated with a high meat diet is NTOR, mammalian, uh, 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 excuse me, <laughs> I'm <laughs> conflating myself here, but the, uh, the bacterial changes, the uh, bacterial waste products change yeah. profoundly with uh, the type of diet you eat. If you want to get fertilizer in your gut, uh, one of the things you can do is give it a lot of soluble fiber because that's the normal Gross. food of human gut flora. So sweet potatoes and vegetable matures, you get a different waste product, mm -hmm. a different byproduct, and more importantly, a different diversity. If they think now it may not be just the quantity of bacteria in your gut, but the diversity provides protection. And, you know, plant-based eaters have a much broader diversity uh, than animal-based eaters. So, you know, that may be one of the justifications for pushing more plant foods uh, in the diet and certainly a, a justification for fasting because fasting kind of re allows kind of like rebooting the hard drive in a computer that's been corrupted. It allows <laughs> the gut microbiome to recalibrate. Yeah. Fasting is associated with a reduction in the inflammation markers, the IL-6, the TNL-alpha. Um, and I, what I was saying before was that uh, the, the, it was TMA that becomes TMAO, trimethylamine oxidase, that right. is associated yeah. with its cardiovascular disease. So you get uh, changes there. Fasting also, you know, we talked about metabolic syndrome, this, this kind of disease yeah. associated yeah. with increased abdominal obesity and elevated lipids and blood pressure and blood sugar profoundly affected by fasting, maybe more so than any other intervention that's been uh, identified. Uh, fasting, we did a study looking at the fat in the body, and it, which has both adipose tissue and visceral fat. And it turns out in water fasting, visceral fat is preferentially mobilized. <laughs> so you might lose 20% of your adipose tissue, but 50% of your visceral fat. Yeah. You know, disproportionate mobilization is it makes sense because visceral fat shouldn't be there in quantity. And as a consequence, it's been sequestered there, no place else to put it, it's been <laughs> so fat. And so it's not surprising that in fasting, that preferentially mobilizes. And, you know, it's not just things going down, things go up in fasting, too. Mm -hmm. So you get increases in things like um, adenopectin and ghrelin and AMPK, which has downstream effects on mitochondrial biogenesis. When people fast, there's more mitochondria actually produced inside the cells which may in part be responsible for why some of these patients with fatigue and other issues seem to resolve in fasting. Uh, the fuel, we talked about your brain changing fuels yeah. to BHB, beta-hydroxybutyrate. Beta-hydroxybutyrate is associated with increased what's called um, BDNF, mm -hmm. brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is also goes up, by the way, in exercise. <laughs> and that protects the brains from dementia, from oxidative damage that occurs right. associated with dementia and Alzheimer's disease. And so if you take rats in a cage, for example, and you give every, the rats are the same genetically, but you give some rats a wheel so it can exercise, yeah. the rats will exercise and they will not get dementia. And it's because their brain BDNF levels are higher, which protects the brain from oxidative damage. Well, exercise increases BDNF, so does fasting. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> profound effect on again exercise and fasting are like cousins yeah in this uh. in this process of getting well we talked about insulin sensitivity the hormone that drives sugar from the bloodstream into the cells insulin sensitivity goes up in fasting your insulin works better which may be why as much as 80 percent of our type 2 diabetics can achieve normal blood sugar without without medications uh, and if they're willing to do dangerous and radical things like eat well and exercise, they can sustain those results. <laughs> we already talked about uh, the um, uh, Yoshinori Oshumi's Nobel Prize for Medicine for Autophagy. Autophagy yeah. goes up in fasting and gut microbiome diversity. There's a lot of stuff we're learning, changes with fasting. Some stuff goes up, some stuff goes down, but all of it's about undoing the consequences of dietary excess. Your main fasting is water fasting. I interviewed a guy called Trevor uh, a few months ago who was into dry fasting. I'd be interested yeah. to get your take quickly, Dr. Allen, on dry fasting and well, one whether, of the, what you do with it or if you use yeah. it at all. So we don't use dry fasting at all. And I don't yeah. consider it physiologically sound. And I'll explain why. When you go on a fast, the toxins that are eliminated are not showing up in your bowels so much. They're showing up in your urine because the urine is the byproduct of the kidneys filtering the blood. And so if you don't have enough solute in the case of fasting from water, you will dehydrate. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's just a question of days. <laughs> and as a consequence, the toxins you're mobilizing in your fasting are not going to be able to be processed and eliminated in your urine. They're going to stay in the body. Right. And eventually what you will get is kidney failure. And in fact, that's how one of the gentlemen recently that was a proponent of dry fasting passed away. Mm. So he went into kidney failure from practicing what he preached. So I certainly <laughs> admire his, his determination. Yeah, I just think very committed. Thinking not, not very uh, clear. It's, it, you need a solute in order to give the body a chance to eliminate the materials that's mobilized. Yep. Now, I know that some people use dry fasting for spiritual purposes or whatever, but I, goodness knows, I don't know how to get into heaven or what flavor of religion you should believe. So I'm not attacking uh, the spiritual, whatever, what I'm saying physiologically from a health standpoint, yeah. it's, it's, it's nonsense. And so yeah. I don't recommend it. We don't advocate it. We don't do it. And in fact, we're very careful at monitoring fluid intake and, and hydration to avoid um, uh, um, the fatal outcomes. Yeah. And, and that's one of the reasons we're able to do that is because we do maintain adequate hydration. So, uh, I'd be very cautious about engaging in um, what were traditionally spiritual uh, practices that yeah. maybe are not physiologically sound, in my opinion. Looking to the future, before I, before I leave you to, to, to your day, Dr. Allen, looking to the future, are you excited that healthcare and people will take better care of themselves based on what you're seeing in, in recent years? Or are you... You, you, you've mentioned a lot that people are getting sick and, and that we've got problems coming. But I also think, I believe that we, we're in somewhat of a positive state because more people are taking better care of their health. When it comes to what you've seen in, in the field that you're in, how, how do you feel about the sort of coming 10 years? Yeah, I think that we're in the midst of what's going to be a, a cascading epidemic of disease and debility as a consequence of dietary excess. And that uh, this generation of children that we're seeing a geometric increase in diabetes is going to continue. Some have right. suggested by 2030, you know, you'll see, you know, as much as 50% of the population um, diabetic. So the, I think there's going to be a bit of a, a crisis that's going to occur as a consequence of this generation of 
uh, people raised on uh, highly processed fractionated foods. Mm-hmm. And also, though, there are more people that are adopting health-promoting diet and lifestyle habits. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a hundredth monkey theory that you don't need everybody to eat healthy and live healthy to make healthy living more popular. Mm-hmm. You, you, may, you may need a certain percentage of the population adopting it so it becomes more acceptable. And now I think there's better communication with things like podcasts and other things where people can get access to information more readily. I think that those people that are motivated to kind of seek health and healthful living have a better opportunity to get different opinions and decide for themselves what makes the most sense. Mm-hmm. So I think there's reason for optimism because of our increasing communication and, and the knowledge that's available and the ability to disseminate it. But I'm also quite pessimistic just because when I look at the numbers and the geometric increase, even since 1986, mm-hmm. you know, in 1986, there wasn't a single state in the United States, for example, that had obesity saturation over 14%. And today, every state is well over that. They've got new wow. colors now, you know, yeah, 35%, new zones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So those patients are going to suffer the consequences. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a, a limited degree to which you can reverse pathology once you get it to a certain point. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's going to have a crushing effect on our attempts to provide meaningful health care and other things. Because right now, a lot of the motivation isn't so much about getting people healthier, it's making the most money possible. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's I think we've got a little ways to go before people are going to get so fed up up of it that you'll see, you know, a massive shift amongst the general population towards more healthful living. Yeah, it's it's very interesting because I agree that the numbers are going up and we're going to see them go higher. Uh, but I also see quite a, a large or a decent chunk of the population paying more attention to health. So this gap is 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 widening and we're going to have a truckload of, of very sick people and then quite a lot of very healthy or a number of very healthy people and they'll survive and the sick ones will die and so it's going to be quite an interesting but i think we're in for a rough ride in the immediate I rem- future i remember when my mother turned 92 years old she had outlived all 50 of her lifelong friends all of her friends were dead all the ones that used to make fun of her diet and her crazy son and all that And she said, you know, it was very difficult at 90 to make new friends because even her friends younger than her, you know, say in their 80s, were still too old and sick to engage in the activities that she enjoyed. And she said, Alan, you need to warn your patients if they're going to do this type of diet and lifestyle. Make younger friends. (laughs) What a beautiful way to finish. Dr. Alan, the True North Health Center. Thank you so much. Great insights, amazing knowledge. It's my pleasure. Thank you. I will link everything in the show notes to your book, to the True North Health Center. And maybe someone, once we can, and the borders open up or relax a little bit, we'll get on a plane and come and see you in America. We have uh, one service that's available uh, for your Australian patients in Australia is that if they want to go on our website and complete the registration form so I can review their medical history, we offer a no-cost phone conversation with me. If they want to have some input about whether any of this might be relevant to them, all they have to do is fill out the forms and give me a call. I'll be happy to talk to them without cost. Awesome. I will link that up. Thank you so much. Thanks for your knowledge. My pleasure. Appreciate it, Alan. Thank you.